Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Thursday, December the 7th, 2023. Day doesn't seem to go by without some major announcement about AI. Uh, yesterday, it focused on Google's launch of Gemini, uh, uh, an AI model that it claims and hopes will at least eclipse GPT-4. No doubt when GPT-5 comes out, it will claim that it has eclipsed Gemini. There are so many new developments. It's astonishing. And, and many of our conversations on the show recently have been about AI. Yesterday, for example, we had the very distinguished American poet, Ben Lerner, who's the uh, also a, a very distinguished novelist on. Uh, he wrote a piece recently in Harper's Magazine uh, about uh, the memory of Wikipedia and how we're forgetting everything. We're living in, a, in an age of amnesia. That's what our AI age is. Um, and it, it all reflects on how we see or don't see the world. That is the theme of our show today. My guest, Jill Walker-Rettberg, teaches at the University of Bergen, beautiful uh, place uh, on the uh, west coast uh, of Norway, uh, one of the wettest towns in the world, but also one of the most beautiful. She heads up the Center of Digital Narrative. And she has a new book out, Machine Vision, How Algorithms Are Changing the Way We See the World. Jill is joining us from Bergen. Um, Jill, I just uh, reread Eric Schmidt and Henry Kissinger's book, uh, The Age of AI. Have we arrived at the age of AI, or is that a term that's not very useful? I'm not sure we're ever going to arrive there. Um, but we've been dreaming about it for millennia, literally. I mean, people have been imagining these machines that are going to take over, that are going to think differently. I think there's a lot of exciting things going on right now, though. We haven't arrived. Will we ever arrive? Uh, is it rather like the Brazilian economy? I always make this joke. You probably don't have many listeners from Brazil now, but it's always on the horizon and never quite reached. Is it possible we'll get there? Or is it one of those endless train journeys that in the end we'll end up somewhere else? Well, I mean, you could certainly say we're already there. We're already using... AI, personal assistants, phones, uh, all sorts of devices with ChatGPT integrated into, you know, our, our word processing programs at this point. Um, and I think uh, the machine vision book, I'm really interested in how, how these everyday sort of AI powered visual tools are becoming something that we just constantly use. So you know, I look into my phone um, to take a selfie and it's automatically adjusting the picture of my face to match what the algorithms think is like, what a face should look like. So, yeah, I guess we're here. We're here. And what does it look like? Uh, your book was very nicely blurred by uh, Kate Crawford. Uh, she wrote, if you want to understand how machine vision is woven into our lives from how we perceive the world to how we see ourselves start here. She's the author of Atlas of AI, a very good book, but a very dark book, a dystopian book. It, it is, is the world you're describing, uh, Jill, in machine vision, is it dystopian? 
You know, I tried to find other things because when I started researching this, I saw algorithmic bias, you know, AI, you know, AI facial recognition that can't recognize black people, which leads to incorrect arrests, for instance. Um, I saw surveillance cameras replacing, you know, conductors on trains, but also replacing teachers or those human interactions that I think are so important. Um, but I came to also see how many fun things that we do with them, right? I mean, selfie filters are, have you tried selfie filters, Andrew? Uh, if you had a face like mine, Je uh, Jill, you wouldn't. <laughs> I don't think I've yet passed like, you know, Snapchat with selfie filters to a, a child. I'm not a selfie type, but that's probably my problem rather than uh, yours. But anyway, <laughs> I, I'm sure they're good. So tell me about selfie filters and why they, uh, shall we say, uh, filter your vision of the world, make them slightly more cheerful than, than yeah, I mean, that's, someone like uh, Kate Crawford. That's sort of where I started actually looking at this project was when I found, you know, started playing with selfie filters and they are hilarious, right? At the same time as they're using the same technology as facial recognition and biometrics and surveillance, but in a fun, playful way. And I thought that was just really exciting it's also this new way of seeing your own face which is always sort of algorithmically um, adjusted you know um so i i went out and tried to look at like the really the long history of this but also what's happening today so the book um includes an example of one of the first visual technologies which is actually a polished mirror that's eight thousand years old it's carved out of obsidian so that very black shiny rock um, but it's it's cut so that it fits perfectly in your hand, right? It's like a half sphere. Um, and so it's a mirror that's handheld and it sort of is a lot like holding um, a smartphone and looking at yourself in the smartphone. It's like 8,000 years in the technologies for looking at ourselves. So Yeah, the subtitle of the book, which perhaps... Um hints at the fact that it's not as dystopian as some of the other books these days on AI is how algorithms how algorithms are changing the way we see the world. The classic dystopian subtitle would be how algorithms are changing the way we are seen. Uh, so you still give us a degree of agency. We're not just um, an object at the end of a camera, kind of a, a digital uh, Orwellian uh, narrative. No, I'm really interested in the relationships between humans and technologies. And one of the things I try to do in the book is is talk about how it's not just um, it's not just that we use the technology or that the technology uses us. It's, it, it enters into these what I call assemblages, these sort of networks of people, but also histories. So one of the chapters looks at. Um, a debate. They were. Um, I lived in Oak Park, which is uh, a small town just outside the city limits of Chicago. I lived there last year, and they were debating um, setting up this new uh, surveillance cameras all around that would be license plate recognition cameras. So AI-powered cameras that would send alerts to the police if you know stolen vehicles or vehicles that were acting weird. Um, showed up in the neighborhood and there was a big, big debate about it. And the more I listened to the debate, which was, 
you know, some people wanted safety. They felt like surveillance cameras would help keep them safe. And other people said, this is like, um, it's a racist technology. It's going to keep people out. It's it's going to punish people who don't need to be punished. We need to be developing other things instead. And these two sides of the debate, they were just so, there was a lot of conflict. And the more you looked at it, the more you see, it's not just about the technology or the cars. It's about like, the sort of histories of that town which has worked hard to to fight uh, to be diverse and to fight racism right for instance so you've got that history there but you've also got all the stories about how this surveillance cameras have worked other places about false arrests made on the basis of them and, and also the fear so um but, which is another thing i saw living there you know i came from norway which is where i usually live um, and I feel pretty safe in Norway. I don't worry someone's going to, you know, mug me on the street. But when we were living in Oak Park and I was taking the L to the University of Chicago and people were like, what, you're taking the L? Are you crazy? And I was like. Yeah, okay. I've got that train. It is a little uh, disconcerting, shall we say. Yeah, well, it, it turns especially, out. Uh, especially if you if you live and grown up in, in Bergen. Uh <laughs> We are speaking with Jill Walker-Retberg, a distinguished um, thinker on artificial intelligence based at the University of uh, Bergen in Norway, the author of a very intriguing new book, uh, Machine Vision, How Algorithms Are Changing the Way We See the World. Uh, it's a historical book, Jill. You don't, um, you don't just begin in the digital age. How much has digital changed the way in which we see the world? I think that having AI actually adjust the images that we see is very much changing. Like, for instance, I went skiing last weekend and um, I tried to take a picture and everything's rather white, right? Because there's snow everywhere. And my camera, my phone couldn't take a picture of the white um, snow. It tried to autocorrect everything and make it um, sort of gray. Um, in California, when there were wildfires a few years ago, people complained that the phone automatically um, changed the skies that were orange to look gray as well. So there's this normalizing aspect to our technologies. But also, I mean, we've, we've really, it, it, it's really fun to be able to see things at a distance and see things that the human eye can't see alone, you know? Um, so... For instance, I think the way we now are learning to see through drones or surveillance cameras or, or satellite images or the way self-driving cars see, these are also changing our idea of what's out there, what's in the world. And I think that's um, something humans really enjoy. So we've always enjoyed it. And AI then isn't a dramatic change. It's just a technology that allows us to enjoy ourselves a little bit more. <laughs> well, I'd say it's a bit more interesting than that. I mean, the new, um, the way we can now generate new images is fascinating. And obviously, one of the things I do talk about a fair bit is, is the bias and, and the cultural, the things that are embedded in this new technology, right? Um, the other day, I, you know, I tried to prompt Dali to make pictures of Professor. And unsurprisingly, they're mostly white men, right? except you could see every fourth professor was uh, a woman, which I thought was interesting. Um, 
then you look a bit at the women and the women it was generating their faces were cropped like that so you could only see like a bit of their face now if you go deeper into how that happens it turns out there's this kind of male gaze that's um in the ai that tends to crop photos of women differently than it crops photos of men it crops photos of, of black people differently than it crops photos of white people for instance so this is like these historical biases in the training data that are now being regurgitated by the generative ai so that certainly is potentially you know limiting the way we're able to imagine or at least um, generate images of the world going forwards we live in an age, Jill, you don't need me to tell you this, where we're obsessed with bias. We're accusing, everybody accuses everyone else of one kind of bias or another. I don't know if you're following the current hysteria in America about the representation of the, uh, the Gaza war. In parallel with this, we have this new technology, which you write about in this book, machine vision reflects, under my uh, uh, reflects, compounds bias. Is that coincidental? Why do we have, it seems like two things are going on simultaneously and they have to be connected. On the one hand, we're obsessed with bias, which has nothing to do with AI. I mean, it doesn't seem to me. On the other hand, we have a technology which seems to promise the elimination of bias the observation, the revelation of bias. And on the other hand, according to researchers like yourself and Kate Crawford, actually compounds bias. What's going on here? Well, this is quite interesting. A lot of people have argued that bias becomes encoded in technology, and there's certainly ways that does happen. Uh, like the example I just gave with the professors. Um, but one of the main arguments in my book is that technology actually functions differently in different contexts, right? And the one of the examples I use that I think really shows this is um, how staffless supermarkets have been done in the US versus in Europe, or at least in Scandinavia. So um, in Norway, they have staffless supermarkets that are out by fjords. They're like in small rural places where you'd have, maybe there's only a few hundred people live there, the supermarkets only open a few hours a day and this run by like a family or one person maybe who would rather be out fishing half the time. And of course, and nobody so, steals in Norway, do they? Everyone trusts. No, them. no, no, no. Everybody is perfectly. <laughs> well, there's more trust in the small society, right? So um, so in Norway, they have staffless supermarkets where they do have surveillance cameras, um, but they have some people sitting uh, in an office in Oslo or something, and they're there 24 seven. So whenever you, you know, if you want to borrow, if you want to buy beer and you need, they need to check your age, you just do a video call with them. And it's very sort of low tech in a way. I mean, there's surveillance cameras, video chat, that's it. Whereas in the US, you've been to an Amazon Fresh store, I'm guessing, have you? Yes. Yeah. You walk in there, there's surveillance everywhere. It's like, it's part of like what they're selling is like, this is so high tech. There's just look at all the cameras and you know, they have the weights, the, the scales on the shelves. So when you take something off the shelf, there's object recognition. Um, there's a scale that measures the now something heavy was removed. You walk through this ultra technological shop and you're supposed to be able to just walk straight out and get the bill in your Amazon um, account rather than having to check out manually, right? So there's a lot more technology. Although they're all very staffed. The Amazon Freshers I've been to have more staff than like Whole Foods or something. Is it that way where you are too? 
I think they've shot all the ones, uh, certainly in the Bay Area. Let me rephrase the question, Jill. Maybe I didn't express it clearly enough. It's a kind of Hegelian question of oh. uh, these coincidences in history. Is it what comes first, the, the culture, our cultural obsession with bias or the technology? Or do they exist in parallel? Can they... Is it just coincidental that we have the technology to address bias at the same time as we're obsessed with bias? Um, mm. or, or, or is there a connection? Is there something almost unconscious about the way in which we're obsessed with a subject in which we have technology that ultimately should, in the long run, be able to address it? Because machines aren't or can be programmed, shall we say, not to be biased. They can, but it's difficult to do. Um, but it can be done, and we know how. I mean, we know that machines are, could be biased, so we can address that. Well, AI is trained on data, and the data is biased, right? I mean, this is this is how things are. So the there is no escaping bias, is what I would say, right? There's always going to be no some escaping bias. bias. That's the, that's going to be uh, the title of our. <laughs> well, I think it's true. There, there's always going to be bias, but I think being always? aware of that bias. You Even need if to... you could control, you you have uh, your. Sorry to keep on interrupting, uh, but you 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 have your pin tweet um, uh, about uh, finding the juicy bits of big data sets for researchers like yourself. If you played with those data sets, those data sets which feed these these engines, couldn't you escape bias? I don't think we can because everything is biased. Did you know? I mean, if engineers might tell you, we'll just get more data, get diversify it, right, and and then you'll escape the bias. But there's hardly any data in the world that is that is exactly what you think it is did you know like shipping data like temperatures in the ocean you'd think that would be unbiased right but they only measure it along shipping routes so you're only getting the temperature in certain places we're not getting temperature measurements from russia anymore because of the the, the war in ukraine right um so even data you think is like objective and real is actually quite biased but you can get you, you can get closer i mean you you brought up and this is often people bring this stuff up about white and black faces male and female faces straight and gay faces blah blah but if you could feed the exact data into the engine where i don't know 17 percent of americans are black 18 percent are gay eight percent are transgendered nine percent are over 60 couldn't you have a relatively accurate AI that reflects who we are? For some things, like facial recognition um, that is trained on labeled data sets of faces can be improved. And when Joy Bonavini did the auditing and found, she did this in her Gender Shades project, and she found that, um, you know, the main facial recognition systems don't recognize or didn't recognize people of color and women as well as white men. Um, and because that system is trained on a fixed data set, they were able to diversify it and fix it. And now many of the systems are a lot better now, right? But now that we're doing language models like ChatGPT or, or Gemini that are just, we're trying to train them on everything when we don't have that kind of data set that you can actually um, 
that you can curate in that way. Because when you've got that much data, it's it's going to be there's going to be bias in it in some sense, right? And I think um, the other thing is the 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 way that the the models work. I mean, they're normalizing things, right? They're finding statistical probabilities, and then they're generating more of that. There, there's studies that sh there was a, a study where they trained a model on faces of uh, I think it was engineering professors in the US. So they had 200,000 profile pictures of like professors in engineering, which is obviously a fairly male dominated field, right? Um, and they found that the model, when you asked it to generate new pictures, it generated more men, right? So let's say there's like 80% men in this training data, there's 90% men in the generated synthetic data, right? So this is the whole point of how many of these models work. They they find what's statistically probable and they give you more of that. So it means that it means that differences are erased to some extent. There is no escaping bias, at least according to Jill Walker-Retberg, the author of Machine Vision. Um, I want to thank uh, Liberties, uh, an excellent new quarterly journal of culture and politics. They're helping bring us uh, on Keen on such high quality content. Going to run a short feature on Liberties and then we'll be back with Jill Walker-Retberg to talk about how algorithms are changing the way we see the world. So don't go away, anyone. Don't look back. Beyond the news, the noise, there is nuance, insight. Liberties is not just a journal of ideas, it's a meteor of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens. Politics, opinion, substance. Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought. A quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. And you can subscribe to Liberties at libertiesjournal.com. We're speaking with Jill Walker-Retberg, an academic at the University of Bergen uh, on the west coast of uh, Norway, and the author of a very intriguing new book, Machine Vision, How Algorithms, How Algorithms Are Changing the Way We See the World. Uh, uh, Jill, uh, the book um, touches on the Middle Ages. I'm always intrigued by comparing modernity or 21st century modernity, post-modernity perhaps with the Middle Ages. When we go to art galleries and we look at the artwork from the Middle Ages, there's always certainly a, a metaphysical quality to the way in which the people of the Middle Ages viewed the world, or at least the artists view the world. How does that compare with our algorithmic age? Is there an, uh, an equally metaphysical quality? Uh, when we see the world, are we looking not just objectively or scientifically, but also metaphysically with, with these new uh, tools? Mm -hmm. Well, one of the things I discuss in the book is this transition to uh, you know the, the idea that science and measurement could uh, could would be the best way to see the world, right? In the medieval times, it was based on you know God. We assume that the Earth is in the center um, and that the human is in charge. Here. Well, no, that comes a bit later, I guess. But then, with one of my arguments is that it's with machine vision, like the telescope, for instance, the microscope, that you get this scientific method and the idea that we can measure things visually and that really changes how we how we deal with the world 
you get um, cinema and photography in the 1800s. And that also gives us this idea of being able to see the world objectively, right? There's, um, you know, have you, you've probably seen those pictures of Moy Bridges of the horse that gallops, right? The, yes. The galloping horse. So he takes like 12 photos. Um, Rebecca Solnit has written an interesting book yes. on that. Beautiful book. Um, when the sculptor Paul Rodin saw those pictures and he, he saw photography and people were like, why bother to make sculptures, why make art when, when we've got photography, it captures the world perfectly, right? Paul Rodin said, no, phot photographs aren't true because time doesn't stand still, which is true, right? A photography's kind of a lie as well, but we have this idea that it's, a, that it's objective. And so I think that's one of the main things that visual technologies have done to us. It's this idea that there can be something objective that we can scientifically measure. And I think generative AI is sort of messing with that a bit because obviously generative AI is in, it's enabling all sorts of images of things that don't exist, which is, well, from a, from a sort of research point of view, really interesting. A bit disturbing, of course, too. It's all very disturbing, uh, Jill. I don't know if you've seen Kai-Fu Lee's new book, AI 2041, 10 Visions for Our Future. It's an interesting book. I'm also looking at that. Um, hopefully we can get Kai-Fu on the show. Um, he introduces the idea of the real fake and the idea that AI will eventually create a world where it'll be increasingly hard to distinguish. And I use these words carefully, truth from uh, invention. Uh, what do you argue in your book about the way in which algorithms are changing the way we see the world? Will we look at the world more skeptically given that eventually technology will be able to replicate fiction as effectively as fact? So I, when I started working on this project, I thought that would be the case. Um, there's deep fakes, you know, we, there's all these images that we know aren't true or that we want to believe they might be true. It, so I, I thought that we would trust images less, that we'd stop tr trusting pictures. But I think um, actually the opposite sort of happened. We have this intense faith in things like surveillance cameras or technical images being able to actually... Um, give us the truth, right? We think that, oh, there's increased crime, surveillance cameras are going to fix that. Or, uh, you know, there's uh, there's something wrong with the world. We'll, we'll, we'll put more cameras in, more surveillance, more analysis, more AI, more data. That's how we're going to fix everything. Um, I don't think that's necessarily true, but I think it's this almost religious belief that technology will be able to watch over us and just solve everything. And what does that suggest politically? Because, of course, you may be correct about that in, intense faith in the truth of technology, but we also live in an age where there's an intense distrust of everything else, of authority, of traditional narratives, of mainstream media, an age of conspiracy theories of one kind or another. We talked with Ben Lerner about Pizzagate. It, it, are we on the brink, perhaps, of, of, of transforming our AI, AI age into an age of uh, technological religiosity where we we pray not to, in Brave New World, uh, Huxley talked about 
Ford as the god, but AI as a kind of god? And, and might that actually be a solution to so many of our current problems? <laughs> I, I think we really are. And for instance, uh, for instance, in Chicago, they had this um, shot spotter. It's a technology that recognizes the sound of uh, gunshots, sends alerts to the police uh, to say, oh, look, go to this place. And they had an independent report looking at how well this worked and it didn't work very well at all. It's, it wasted police time. It didn't reduce crime. It, it caused the police to, to change the way they work without actually improving the way they work. And even so, the politicians wanted more of it. I think it's like, we think the technology is objective and that's what we can trust, you know, which is, um, rather frightening but it, it's also related to the the ai um, you know existential risk people the people who think we're going to have a, a super intelligence that really is you know we need to make sure actually likes humanity and doesn't just destroy us all and there's also a lot of science fiction about this idea too that's one of the one of the science fiction novels i talk about in the book is um by neil shusterman thunderbird uh it's about uh, a future world where there's this lovely benevolent AI called Thunderhead that that looks after us all, watches us constantly, you know, all watched over by machines of loving grace, as Richard Brodigan said in his poem in the 70s or 60s, was it? So is that uh, one way of imagining a, a future with a, a sort of a, a Singapore-style techno-authoritarianism, maybe a little gentler than the Chinese version. What does it suggest about democracy <laughs> and AI? I actually think we're more likely to end up like the US with a very decentralized political system that has more and more and more surveillance everywhere where people are surveilling each other and your neighbors and, and people are getting so scared because of it that they assume everyone else is a threat, right? I think... There is, um, in sociology, people talk about, you know, the micro interactions, you know, when you pass someone on the street and you just sort of glance at each other, you're not even friends, you don't exchange words, but you know you're both there. And those little micro interactions are incredibly important for community and feeling that trust. And I do think that some of these surveillance technologies that we're installing everywhere um, remove some of that community. And that is problematic. I it's like the good, machine. It's good for the uh, the gun industry, and it's why so many of us want to come and live in Norway, uh, Jill. What about right. owning the way in which we see the world? We had um, a San Francisco-based uh, graphic artist, Carla Ortiz, on the show last month, who's suing some of these uh, Dali-style image makers for stealing her creative work, or at least so she claims. Um, Algorithms are changing the way we see the world, but um, should there be a way of, of owning the way we see the world? What's the, what should and what can the role of creative community? Uh, last week I was in Barcelona with a group of artists focusing on this issue of the future of creativity in the age of AI. What's your take in machine vision on this? I think there's a lot of potential for working with AI. I don't think AI on its own is going to be producing anything very exciting. Um, but I think in collaboration with humans, there's a lot of really interesting art that we could develop. Um, and I also think, I mean, 
generative AI is really good at producing things that are similar to others, to things we've seen before, but so are humans. There's a there's an Instagram account called Insta Repeat, and it just collects Instagram photos taken by different people that are almost the same as each other. You know, so it will be like someone in a rowboat, um, their back and the, everything's centered, or it will be somebody standing in front of a cave or someone about to walk down a path. There, there are so many sort of photographs that we take again and again and again. People aren't that. Yeah, I agree. And we, we obsess over the supposed human quality of machines. Maybe we should focus more on the machine qualities of humans. Mm. <laughs> well, I mean, I think there's a there's a theorist called Malraux. He talked about the uh, the uh, the bibliothèque imaginaire, so the imaginary library. So he, he says every book that's ever written is actually based on this imaginary li imaginary library of all books that were ever written in the world before. Even if you haven't read them, they'll sort of be part of your consciousness. Yeah, it's uh, Borges, uh, and, and I think we, all this comes out of Borges, of course, he, in, a, in, a, in an odd way, thought, imagine the internet before it existed. You, yeah. The subtitle of the book is How Algorithms Are Changing the Way We See the World, and of course, who owns those algorithms? Um, many of them are owned by big tech. Uh, Kate Crawford, in her book, Atlas of AI, focuses on the dangerous consequences of that. Many other writers and academics are focused on this. Are you fearful of the role of big tech in this age of machine vision? You seem much more cheerful, much sunnier than the many other <laughs> academic analysts of all this. <laughs> oh, there's, it's so easy to see the problems. Yeah, it really is. Um, I mean, I live in Europe in Norway, which is a small country, and so one of the things when I use uh, ChatGPT, for instance, uh, I become very aware of how it is trained on U.S. text mostly. Right? It can type, it can write to me in Norwegian, but the stories it's telling me are American stories. You know, there's a lot of you know, there's American stereotypes. Or if I ask it to to tell me a Norwegian story, it'll be a story about the Northern Lights and Sven and Freya and a reindeer. It's stories out of, or, or ask it to tell you an Australian story, and it's like something out of, you know, that um, Outback Steakhouse, that weird sort of simulacrum, sort of weird idea of what Australia is that is, it, it, see, it's, it's really strange. And so, yeah, that worries me. And it's clear that, you know, companies like um, the com the big tech companies that are developing these language models that are now being used all over the world are driven by commercial desires. You know, they want to sell stuff. They want to, uh, or maybe they want to develop super intelligence. Oh, although some people believe that LLMs, these large language models of ChatGPT and Google's Gemini, will be eventually superseded by smaller language models, narrower, more focused, perhaps there'll be Norwegian versions that get the Norwegians right. All the all the European countries are trying to develop their own uh, language models, I think, the Norwegians. They already have Norbert, but it's not. Uh, there are a lot of different efforts to do this. So, yeah, there will be things for Although sure. Although they, they were we trying to develop their own search engines and none of them succeeded, and Google remains, I think, more dominant in Europe than it is in the United States. Exactly. So, uh, yeah, it, it, it will be very interesting to see how these things go.
Well, I'm trying to make you miserable, Jill, but not without <laughs> any success. Your 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 optimism is refreshing. Finally, we're we're adding this as a feature to all our interviews now in our age of AI. Um, Jill Walker-Retberg, the author of Machine Learning. If there was one big problem in the world that AI could solve, in your mind, what would it be or what could it be? Climate change. Um and war, I suppose. But I'm not convinced AI can really solve those human social conflicts. So I'm going to go with climate change. It would be amazing if we could use technology to help um, deal with that. And how would that happen? I don't know. But if they can figure out, you know, alpha fold and proteins and vaccines, if we run them, maybe I mean, my worry, and this is the not so hopeful part of me, is that instead we're putting all the focus on developing the AI technology and we're sort of forgetting about the real existential risks to humans, which are things like the changing climate, you know. So what's um, your message to uh, the folks at ChatGPT and Anthropic and, um, and um, Google, uh, Gemini? What would you like them to do? I would love them to really try to to really try to solve those those huge problems. Um, maybe not worry so much about you know the super intelligence and think about how we can use this technology to help people today.